Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Oh, Gavin, I absolutely found a cricketer that murdered somebody. It wasn't even hard. Yes. The following podcast contains... But swearing and using dirty words is not one of my vices. I don't use foul language, and I don't like to hear anyone else use it either. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you let the guy go because he played Norberg on Police Squad, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 409. Everybody knows OJ did it, edition of the show. It's part one of Wheezing the Juice, our summer series about the time of OJ. Stay tuned. What the hell were you thinking podcast is brought to you by Murderabilia.com, the sports collectible auction site featuring items only from sports celebrities who've killed someone. We all love sports, and every sports memorabilia aficionado knows that there are a lot of collectors out there. So why not specialize? At Murderabilia.com, we carry only sports collectibles from athletes either convicted of or suspected of murder. From Aaron Hernandez to Warrington Phillip, he was a cricket player. We have all the merch from trading cards to autograph mugshots. At Murderabilia, all of our collectibles are authenticated by Fast Eddie's sports authentication, so you know who you get is the real thing. So if you're in the market for anything from a Ralph Schwab rookie card to one of OJ's bloody gloves, you want Murderabilia.com. OJ has a key in this highly successful TV series, First and Ten, shot in location here in Los Angeles. Tell her, don't ask me that. TV, please. For me. I like the business of filmmaking more than I like actually acting. I mean, okay. football, there's a winner and a loser. Any sporting event, there's a winner and a loser when it's over, and you know if you played well or if you didn't. And acting, you have to rely on other people to tell you if you played well. Language. But I do like the process of creating something with a group of people and you're all working towards a common goal and when it's done you can look at it and people will actually get entertainment from it. Background! Here's a fun fact about me. I was the only white person in 1995 that would have voted to acquit O.J. Simpson. Or at least the only white person I knew and I knew. Way too many white people. And I made my fellow whites mad when I said this. Jesus Christ, Dave! So I had to explain myself to all my fellow whites. See, I knew OJ did that shit. Everyone knew OJ did that shit. AC knew it. Robert Kardashian knew it. Johnny Cochran knew it. Lance Ito knew it. Nancy Grace knew it. Merle from South Crotch, Louisiana knew it. OJ's mama. They all knew OJ did that shit. But knowing something and proving something are not the same. Explain yourself. Okay, see, like my dad. Like, my dad knows that God is real and Jesus has saved his immortal soul. And and if I just accepted Jesus into my life, then I would join him forever in the kingdom of heaven. What my dad cannot do is, uh... Prove it. Prove it. Nah, because no one can. I'm not a lawyer. We do that. But I was a cop for many, many years. And one of the biggest things I learned about investigating crimes is that 
What you think you know about any given crime is rarely all there is to know about that crime. Now, say the crime is teenagers breaking car windows out of boredom. You probably don't really need to know that little Tommy is only acting out because his father doesn't show him an attention, so he does bad things because that's the only way he knows to get any attention at all. Is this about you? Oh, God, no. I was cool with not being noticed. It helped me get away with a lot of shit. But when a crime is, say, I don't know, the savage murder of an ex-wife and a waiter bringing her sunglasses, the things you don't know have got to be found out. And you best hope that they're discovered by you and the prosecution, because you do not want to be sitting in a courtroom and have the defense team be the ones to drop a bomb in the middle of your methodically planned case. It takes a very good lawyer to be able to recover from some shit like that. And not even the best fucking lawyer in the world is going to recover from the defense carpet bomb in your case with multiple discoveries of shit you already should have known. This is going to be a problem. And this is what happened in 1995, and this is why O.J. Simpson walked out of court a free man. It's the story of incompetence at its very heart. Oh, and let's not forget the power of being rich. O.J.'s money and the prosecutor's stupidity are the real story. So... I guess it's as good a time as any to start telling you that story. All the professional journalists and documentarians are going to spend at least a full hour telling you everything you need to know about OJ's backstory. Fortunately for you, I'm neither of those. So, I'll sum it up by saying that uh, OJ was... Uh, oh, he was good in one thing. And that thing was football. From 1967 to 1979, O.J. was one of the most recognizable players in the NFL. The team he played for the longest, the Buffalo Bills, were not good at football. It's not unfair to say the only reason they won any games at all is because O.J. was very, very good at football. Now, I don't know much at all about football. That goes without saying. But uh, I am told that he was very good at running with the ball. Unfortunately for O.J., football, not kind to the human body. It's probably all that tackling that goes on. By 1978, he had run with the ball so many times and been struck by so many large men while doing so, his knees, a very important of the body for running, were kind of fucking shot. They were so bad that even the very bad football team that was the Buffalo Bills traded him away to the San Francisco 49ers for one more season before O.J. retired. In his whole career, O.J. only went to the playoffs the one time and never, ever went to the Super Bowl, which I'm told by those in the know is important. Well, duh. Because O.J. was so very good and the Bills were so very bad at football, O.J. became very popular in America. ESPN.com wrote, quote, Off the field, Simpson made a conscious decision to project a positive image to distance himself from the teenage O.J., who was a troublemaker and spent time in a correctional center. He had an innate way of communicating warmth and charm that lifted him to an almost mythical level and made him the first African-American athlete to be merchandised on a grand scale. His Hertz commercials pictured a dapper OJ running to catch a Hertz rent-a-car, smiling as he hurtled the airport guardrail and flashed past the cheering old lady. Nobody does it better than Hertz. Nobody does it better. Hertz leads the others by far. Nobody does it better for you. Hertz, the superstar. Nobody has more of what it takes to rent you a Fairmont Mustang, LTD, or other fine car faster. Hurts the superstar. You know. 
He was an African-American man interacting with white men and women as if this were a natural part of our society, as if other African-American athletes were not protesting the segregation that still existed. Overtly, Simpson sidestepped the entire issue, appearing apolitical, which was how the business community and the audiences accepted him, all of which catapulted him to a level of financial success unknown to most athletes, black or white, of his time. He was an attractive man who did not thrust his fist in white society's face, but rather extended his open hand in friendship. There was this Mr. Clean image he presented, while others knew of a darker side that existed in his youth, unquote. And look, the reason I read you all that is because you really, really need to know and understand this simple fact. O.J. Simpson was in the very racist parlance of the time. He's one of the good ones. Okay. Let's see uh, how I can put this without making me come off as a racist asshat. In those days, and let's be honest, today, white people categorized black people. On the one hand, there were black people, and black people, according to white racists, were lazy, criminal, hypersexual, and unintelligent. I don't like where this is going. Me either, dudes. And on the other hand, there were the black people that white people actually knew, or at least thought they knew. Those folks were normal, hardworking, honest, not scary, and just as smart as anyone. You know, regular people. And they were classified by racist white people as the good ones. OJ worked very, very hard and very intentionally to fit into that latter category in the minds of racist white Americans, which at the time were most Americans. Just like now. Now that you know this admittedly uncomfortable piece of information, you can begin to see why OJ was so popular and why white people were so upset by what OJ did. But uh, we're not to that part just yet. As I said, OJ good at football. But when it came to almost everything else, OJ was not so good. Following his retirement, he made the obvious move that so many players make post-football. He moved upstairs to the broadcast booth where uh, OJ was not a natural fit. USA Today ranked him the worst announcer in NFL history, writing, quote, even before all the stuff that led to Monday Night Football basically incorrectly disassociating itself from OJ, he'd still have ranked at the bottom of our list. He was scripted, talked about himself far too much, and asked coaches to have the sort of questions you normally hear on an ESPN3 broadcast, unquote. Color commentary for sports is probably the hardest job in broadcasting, and a lot of ex-football players aren't very good at it. Shit. A lot of professional talkers aren't very good at it. Look no further than Rush Limbaugh or Dennis Miller, two blowhards justly famous for their ability to prattle on for hours about anything and everything, but that doesn't work in sports commentary. You need to be deeply schooled in the history of the game, utterly versed in the minutiae of the rules, fluent in the names of the faces on the field, and on top of that, you gotta be charming and you gotta be funny. And OJ, sadly, was, uh... No, no, none of those things. He spent a mere two years in the booth, but you know what? That didn't stop OJ from seeking that other path famous famous sports stars seem to think they can follow. Hollywood! Before OJ ever took a snap in the professional gridiron, he had appeared on television. He appeared in 1967, ironically, as it turned out, in an uncredited role as a police recruit on none other than... Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent.
He then appeared in TV's Roots in 1977, playing an African tribesman. Later on that year, he starred again in an ironic foreboding in a CBS TV movie called A Killing Affair. So are you making that up? Sadly, I'm not. Take a listen. This week on the CBS Wednesday Night Movie, Elizabeth Montgomery, O.J. Simpson, two police partners who dare to commit their own social crime. Well, if we're stuck with each other, let's really be stuck. Look, I've got a marriage to think about. I think you better spend the night someplace else. The drama you'll talk about long after. A Killing Affair, Wednesday at 9, 8 Central and Mountain. The axe is going to fall. In which The Juice starred with Bewitches Elizabeth Montgomery, a notable blonde woman, and an interracial love affair that ends badly. Yeah, do with that what you will. Let us now turn to the Los Angeles Times, who wrote in 2014, quote, Simpson retired from the NFL in 1979, taking on a, TV, a series of TV movies, including 1983's Cocaine and Blue Eyes, where he played a private eye in San Francisco, and in the family flip, Hambone and Willie as a trucker who ate Hambone, a dog, in a cross-country adventure. Simpson played Tucker the Trucker. Hambone, 423 Linden Road, Los Angeles, California. Jeez Louise, you're really out of the ballpark. Simpson started his own film production company, Orenthal Productions, in 1979, which produced many of his TV movies, including 1979's Goldie and the Boxer, a movie that received both good reviews and ratings for NBC. When asked about his current fantasy in a 1980 interview with The Times, Simpson's aspirations had clearly moved to Hollywood. Winning an Oscar or an Emmy, I always put my fantasy in the realm of goals. The Oscar or the Emmy says you've reached a level of competence in this business, and I would love to have one, unquote. So we're standing firm on the not getting our hopes up? Perhaps OJ's best-known movie role was in yet one more ironic twist of the knife as the hapless Norberg in Police Squad, in which OJ would burst in rooms and utter such dramatic lines like, Police! Throw down your guns! and then be grievously injured. You know, O.J. wasn't bad at physical comedy, but the directors knew that when it came to O.J.'s acting abilities, the, the less O.J. said, the better. And in a final bit of Hollywood ironic ephemera, in 1994, O.J. was cast as the leader of a group of former Navy SEALs who would have an A-team-like adventures. The pilot, however, was quickly shelved and has never been released to the public. Only bits of it has been seen by reporters and rumors of the contents have trickled out over the years. According to another article from the Times, quote, The show was discussed, but never introduced as evidence during Six Simpsons criminal trial for the murders of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ronald Goldman. In a chilling echo of those killings, a scene in the two-hour movie meant to launch the action drama series features Simpsons' character grabbing what he believes to be an intruder, the young woman turns out to be his daughter, and momentarily holding a knife to her throat. Of course it did! The gist of all this is post-football, and by 1994 especially, O.J. Simpson was a football legend and kind of a Hollywood reject. All right, we're getting closer to the unpleasant part, so let me get in a few more tasteless drops before we get there. O.J. That's a wife, you know. Really, really Dave? Dave? Talking about his first wife, the one he didn't murder. 
O.J. married Marguerite L. Whitley on June 24, 1967. It was none other than O.J.'s best friend and wheelman, Al A.C. Callens, that introduced the two. Romper.com, it's a source, said, quote, The two met in their hometown San Francisco when she was 18 and he was 19. When Simpson began to gain celebrity, their marriage began to falter, and they eventually divorced in 1979. Records from the divorce show that they had a series of temporary separations as early as 1970. Once in 1973, Whitley asked her lawyer to begin the divorce process, but that was called off soon after, unquote. The first marriage lasted for most of O.J.'s football career, but was fraying badly as he approached retirement. The New York Times wrote in 1994, quote, Although violent emotional storms were part of O.J. Simpson's second marriage, that kind of turbulence was not seen in his first marriage to his high school sweetheart, according to court records and a former lawyer for his first wife. A lawyer who represented Mrs. Simpson when the couple divorced in 1979 said he was not aware of any violence in that marriage. You don't find anything was comparable in any way to what we know happened later, said the lawyer, Harry F. Fay. There's nothing in the record and nothing at all ever came to my attention. He was just a jovial, happy man. He was as normal as anybody. In the years after divorce, Mr. Simpson's first wife accused him of not fulfilling his financial obligations. She had no fewer than seven lawyers in seven years. In 1981, she sued Mr. Simpson for failing to pay $26,000 that she said was owed as part of the divorce settlement. The claim was eventually settled. Marguerite Simpson received a $1,500 a month in child support and led a fairly quiet life, unquote. And Marguerite quietly supported OJ in the uh, unpleasantness that followed, but uh, is largely absent from his life now and notoriously press shy. Y you can't blame her. I'm going to be speculatively blunt here. When OJ's football career was over, he, he didn't feel the need to prove to white America that he was one of the good ones anymore. He was famous, and famous because he did the hard work of becoming famous through athletic talent and through good personal branding. Buffalo Bill OJ Simpson, the beloved football star, could never divorce his black wife and mother of his three children and take up with an 18-year-old blonde white woman he met by waitressing in a Beverly Hills nightclub. Hollywood OJ. He can do whatever he wants, right? And I'm not criticizing for OJ for doing it. I mean, a 29-year-old guy dating an 18-year-old, that's not great. But it's also not at all unusual. I mean, your humble podcast host dated a 22-year-old when he was 33, which, numerically speaking, is exactly the same thing. But, you know, I didn't kill her. and Definitely not unusual for Hollywood. And I suspect, and this is borne out in his interviews with his friends, that's why OJ just didn't give a fuck anymore. He was going to do what OJ wanted to do. Which brings us to the portion of the show that I've been putting off. So yeah, we're done with the jokes now. E! Online takes up the stories, quote, Nicole had never heard of Simpson when he walked into the Daisy, the Beverly Hills nightclub where she was working as a waitress. She was born in Frankfurt, Germany, where her Kansas-bred father, Lou Brown, was serving in the Air Force and had met his wife, Judith Bauer. The young family of four, including Nicole's older sister, Denise Brown, moved back to the United States when the girls were toddlers and settled in Orange County, city of Garden Grove. Lou and Juditha had two more daughters, Dominique and Tanya, and when the girls were in high school, the family moved to Monarch Beach in the coastal point, city of Dana Point. Nicole was crowned homecoming princess in 1976 at Dana Hills High School, and on May 20th, 1977, Nicole Brown graduated from high school the day after her 18th birthday. Three weeks later, she met... O.J. Simpson, unquote. Despite being famous, admittedly for a very horrible reason, even today, details on Nicole's life pre-O.J. aren't well known. 
you get the standard boilerplate, bright, energetic, vivacious, pretty, all those things people say about an 18-year-old woman that never really had a life of her own. Nicole never got a made-for-TV movie about her early life, so you have to sift for scraps and press accounts and recollections of her famous friends that she met because she was with O.J. The L.A. Times piece in 1994 lays out what most people knew then and pretty much what most people knew now. Quote, Nicole was a bubbly, always happy and smiling, said Bill Prestridge, one of her teachers. At the same time, however, she was more mature than other students, he said. You almost got the idea she was ready to get out of high school and go on to bigger and better things. Interested in modeling and photography, Nicole enrolled at Saddleback College in Mission Viejo, and her high school friend Chris Valdiva occasionally saw her around campus. By that time, he said, everyone knew she was dating O.J. Simpson, but her romance with a football super superstar didn't seem to have changed her. She was always really down-to-earth, really friendly, unquote. The instant Nicole started dating O.J., O.J. became her entire existence. She dropped out of college because O.J. wanted her all to himself. Big red flag. More from the Times, quote, I only attended junior college for a very short time because Simpson wanted me to be available to travel with him whenever his career required him to go to a new location, even if it was for a short period of time, she said in an affidavit David filed in, during her divorce. I have no other college education, and I hold no degrees. But with Simpson's money and growing fame, who needed a career? And her emotional contributions did not go unrecognized. Six months after their wedding in 1985, when he was inducted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Simpson thanked his new and pregnant wife for helping ease his departure from sports, unquote. Being married to O.J. was Nicole Brown Simpson's entire existence. There essentially was no Nicole outside of O.J. and Nicole. More from E! Online, quote, All of our friends were his friends, and he kept everybody close, ensuring that Nicole hardly opened up to anyone about what was really going on behind closed doors. The truth is... No one really knew her during her marriage. A friend who had said he had known Nicole since her, their early 20s told the LA Times after she was killed. She was never free to be herself or to have friends. She wasn't available for that kind of intimacy. Nicole was also prone to abruptly canceling plans or not showing up when both she and OJ were expected somewhere. The friend added, recalling that OJ would regularly claim that his wife was in bed with menstrual cramps. She was the kind of person who would not say to me what her problems were, added Maria Bauer, who told the Times she'd often heard the couple loudly fighting in the Simpsons' home office. She wouldn't talk, unquote. When the two married in 1985, Nicole was 25 years old and had been with OJ for seven years. OJ Simpson was her only real relationship. These days, people don't marry young. They don't know what it was like for a young woman to marry an older man and an older famous man. Nicole Brown Simpson had no frame of reference outside her parents' marriage and its prosaic normalcy for what a, what a normal relationship was. And without meaning to bash Nicole, she was immature in the literal sense of the word and very likely in the metaphorical sense of the word. Friends described the relationship as volatile with both parties flying into rages and prone to public displays of those rages. The LA Times mentions a time when OJ was having brunch with an acquaintance and, quote, Nicole Simpson roared up in a black Mercedes, her blonde hair in a bun, her face contorted with rage. She was screaming at the top of her lungs in the middle of Rodeo Drive, Young said. She was like, if you're fucking going to cheat on me, why don't you pick somebody fucking pretty, unquote. And there's no doubt that OJ was a serial adulterer, again from the time, quote, he'd cheat, 
She'd find out. She'd get angry. She'd confront him. She's a strong girl, and she'd confront him, and they would fight, said one longtime friend, unquote. Look, Nicole was too immature, with good reason, to handle the fights with, I don't want to use the word dignity, maybe calculation might be a better term. The dynamics of an abusive relationship is not something I'm going to try to tackle on this dumbass podcast. But what I will say is having been on the outside of them as a cop, associated with them as a family member, and involved in them myself, wasn't a physical one and I wasn't the abuser, they're complex. And immaturity is the cause of and the reason why they go on for so very, very long. You dodged that question really well. Yeah, I'm open to talking about almost anything on this show, but that's not one of the things I'm willing to talk about. None of this excuses what OJ fucking did. There's overwhelming evidence that OJ regularly abused Nicole throughout the course of their marriage. Not just physically, which, yeah, okay, I'll get there in just a minute, but emotionally and financially. A 1994 Washington Post article quotes a friend, quote, Nicole stayed with OJ as long as she did, the friend recalled, because I don't think she had a great sense of self-worth. She wasn't that well-educated. She didn't have any particular job skills. She was too old to be a model, and she was trapped. He always used money to force her to do what he wanted. Money for the kids, money for whatever, unquote. And then there was the physical abuse. Can we just skip past this part, please? I want to. I really do, but it's important that we don't because it's one of the biggest reasons Nicole Brown Simpson is not alive today. For once, I'm not talking specifically about OJ. Again, from E-Online, quote, on January 1st, 1989, at 3.58 a.m., Nicole called 911. The first operator could only hear screams and what sounded like someone being hit. When the officers arrived at Rockingham, Nicole was wearing sweatpants and a bra. She emerged from the bushes and yelled, He's going to kill me. Asked who was going to kill her, she said, O.J. Yes, O.J. Simpson, the football player. According to the police report from that morning, she had a black eye, a cut lip, and a bruised forehead, and there was a handprint around her neck. You guys never do anything, Nicole told one of the officers. You never do anything. You come out. You've been here eight times, and you never do anything to him, unquote. I want to point out, this wasn't just the cops being nice to OJ because he's OJ. This was pretty much how cops handled fucking domestic violence until well after the Simpson trial. They still do it today. They're just a little more circumspect about it. There are tapes of the 911 calls from Nicole. I'm not going to play them because this is a comedy show. You can find them. I mean, shit, you've almost definitely heard them already. Going back to E! Online, quote, That time, they told OJ, who denied hitting his wife, saying he just pushed her out of the bed, that they had had a drunken fight after a New Year's Eve party, that he had to go with them to the police station. Instead, he drove off into the night in his Bentley. Nicole went to the cops the next day and told them she didn't really want to press charges, but since she had already signed the police report, they were obligated to kick it up to, upward to the L.A. City's attorney's office, which filed domestic charges against Simpson, who had just called start in the naked gun and was working as a broadcaster for NBC Sports. He ended up pleading no contest to misdemeanor spousal battery and was sentenced to 120 hours of community service, two years of probation, twice a week counseling, as well as ordered to pay $500 in restitution to a battered women's shelter. We had a fight, Simpson told up-close host Roy Firestone later that year. We were both guilty. No one was hurt. It was no big deal. And we got on with our lives. It wasn't that big of a deal. 
a close-up photo of her bruised face was found after her death in a safety deposit box along with the prosecution explained when the defense objected to it being shown as photos of her injury from the New Year's Eve incident, unquote. The two would break up. They would reconcile. Unfortunately, not unusual for domestic abuse situations. The cops would be called. The cops would let OJ go because, hey, he's OJ. OJ, yeah, he gets off. And OJ was in good with the cops. In yet another contemporary LA Times article, they detail just a few of the ways OJ butted up to the boys in blue. Quote, the members of the West Los Angeles division of the LAPD frequented the defendant's home, often utilizing the pool and tennis courts. When officers required the appearance of a celebrity at a yearly Christmas party, defendant eagerly agreed to appear. When the officer desired his autograph on footballs, he responded, unquote. Imagine you're Nicole calling the cops because OJ just beat the shit out of you and they show up with a football for OJ to sign instead of arresting him. Because that is what it was like to be Nicole Brown Simpson. The two eventually divorced in 1992. But they would flirt with reconciliation repeatedly over the next few years. And again, I cannot stress how often this happens in abusive relationships. And again, I stress this relationship was Nicole Brown Simpson's only romantic relationship of any substance in her entire life, y'all. This shit happens and it happens a lot, it's a cycle, and it's fucking vicious. More from E! Online. Quote, in March 1994, the whole fractured family, OJ, Nicole, Sidney, Justin, and his older kids, Arnell and Jason, all went to L.A. premiere of the Naked Gun 33 and a third, the final insult. Also that month, Nicole, OJ, and their kids went to Mexico for Easter with Chris, then-husband Bruce Jenner, and kids, and kids Courtney, Kim, and Chloe, and Rob Kardashian. Never forget, y'all, the reason the Kardashians are famous is because O.J. Simpson murdered his wife. A few weeks after this idyllic vacation, well, y'all know what happened. There was another murder that night, by the way. And of all the people in this, I think the one that got fucked over most was Ron Goldman. I mean, shit, even I'm continuing the tradition of making Ron Goldman just, uh, you know. The, the other guy. The other guy. Because Ron really was just some guy. In yet another LA Times article, it's the hometown paper, y'all. What else am I going to do? Quote, life for Ronald Lyle Goldman was a nonstop merry-go-round of working out at a trendy gym, serving dinner at a trendy restaurant, and dancing at trendy nightclubs. Those who knew him said Tuesday he had a model's good looks, a body sculpted by daily weightlifting sessions and tennis, and a magnetic personality that friends said made them want to hang around him just to see what he would be up to next. Goldman, 25, also had an increasingly close relationship with 35-year-old Nicole Brown Simpson, whom he had exercised with, accompanied to dance clubs, and often met for coffee and dinner during the past month and a half. He told others that it was just friends with Simpson, but he boasted of her stunning good looks and talked about the special kick it gave him to see heads turn when the two of them pulled up in her white Ferrari in front of the gate, a fashionable West Hollywood dance club with him behind the wheel, unquote. Was he fucking Nicole? Probably not. Did he want to? Come on. Nicole was definitely a MILF and a Beverly Hills MILF at that. Jesus Christ, Dave. Well, she was. Look, Ron Goldman was just a year older than me, was good looking and hip deep in the Hollywood subcultures of young dudes on the periphery of fame and fortune. I promise you, he was not doing anything any other 25-year-old dude in 1994 might have been doing. Having fun 
trying to figure out what to do with his life and, you know, trying to get laid. So this hot MILF you just happened to know pretty well left her sunglasses at the restaurant you just happened to work at. Yeah, you're going to make that special trip over to get them back to her. Now, do you expect to be invited inside? Well, probably not. I mean, she's got kids, but hey, it's late, so... You never know, huh? I mean, he totally knew who OJ was and that Nicole was OJ's ex. But in no universe would you, this 25-year-old guy who's just being a 25-year-old guy, doing a favor, maybe trying to get laid, expect that the juice would be waiting in the shadows with a fucking knife? And sadly for Ron and Nicole, that's exactly where OJ was. What happens next? Well... There's no need for details, you know them. It is in the aftermath of this terrible night that we will pick up next week for part two of Wheezing the Juice, The Year of O.J. That is it for the show this week. Yeah, we covered a lot this week. And this is just part one of a three-part series. Now next week, we'll get into the mania that swept the nation following the murders, and we're going to start with that Bronco chase that gripped the nation. I mean, they interrupted the finals for that shit. But I'm getting way ahead of myself here. Speaking of getting ahead of oneself, rate and review us so other people can find us, take a listen and think, eh, maybe you were a little ahead of yourself thinking that they would like this show. If you'd like to kick us a dollar for our strenuous efforts not to be tasteless while talking about brutal murders, hit us up at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Each dollar goes towards Gavin's education and why Americans thought the naked gun was funny. Now, do everything that Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, he'll be forced to drive me around in a white Ford Bronco while I hold a bottle of Jameson in my head and cry softly. And he hates it when he has to do that. And so for me, Dave, everybody knows that the fight was fixed. Bledsoe, producer, the pool stay pool and the rich get rich. Gavin and all the fictional Cato Kalins on this show we want to say everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rose because everybody knows that OJ did that shit and we'll see you all next week What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Famous health guest, Kittle Kaelin.